Psalm 131 says this, O Lord, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. I do not occupy my things that are too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And it just is a psalm of faith to say, you know, though the world is spinning around, things don't make sense to me, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to hold tight to him. Like a little baby in its mother's arms, I'm fine. God will take care of me. And I think we just need that when we come to church. Every once in a while, this is a time to get our focus back on the God who's taking care of us every day. So whatever is bugging you, whatever is on your heart, let him take it this morning and just uh, trust him. And like a little child, just trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this church. I thank you for this church. I thank you for... There's so many faithful people behind the scenes that really care, that are unspoken, unseen, unsung, but they really care. Because, God, I really believe there is a desire in this church to exalt Jesus. He is um, everything. He's, he's our provider. He's our sustainer, our healer. But more than that, as we are singing today, he's our king. We believe that Jesus has everything under control. Even this crazy political climate, Jesus is above all that. He's not worried. Even in our homes, whether we're having relational issues, I think of Brian and Becky Howard, how they just, this physical issues just can overwhelm and emotionally exhaust you. You're over, you're over, over that. You can take care of that. Father, I think of um, a couple other people that really are physically hurting. You have that under control. Father, I pray as we look forward to this Easter, I pray that we would take some time out to get alone with you and like a child, just rest in you. I thank you, Father, for this morning that we get to open up your word, and I just pray that your spirit will give us eyes to see and heart to obey. And finally, I pray, even as we give, us, give your money, uh, I pray that, God, it will honor you. I pray you'll use it, and um, we'll be more faithful in that. We love you, Father, in Christ's name. Could you open up to book of Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 21 to about 39. Luke 2, 21 to 39. Like I said earlier, this is Palm Sunday. When I was a little kid, Palm Sunday was a big deal in the church I grew up in. Every, last year we had palms, but man, we'd have palms, we'd have all kind of flowers everywhere. It would be the day, almost. Almost bigger than Easter in the church I grew up with. Palm Sunday is exciting, and I'll bet the day of Palm Sunday was exciting. Being able to go to Israel this past year, you really get to see the terrain. The way the scriptures paint Palm Sunday is the day before, or a couple days earlier, Jesus just healed his friend Lazarus. And then he was in their house in Bethany. If you remember Lazarus, he was 
shrouded. He was in a tomb. Jesus told him to arise, and he came walking out, and everybody was just amazed. Then he went to visit him and his sisters. And then in John, it says, then you have the triumphal entry. In the way the triumphal entry is, there's what's called the Mount of Olives. It's a big hill. Jerusalem's on top of this mountain range. But it's a big hill, and then it goes down into a valley, the Himnon Valley. Then it goes back up into the city, into the front gate. And when you're there, you can really see it. It's, it's about, oh, I'm not sure how long it would take to get there. Maybe about an hour, half hour on, a, on riding on a donkey, probably about an hour. And it says that at that time, all the pilgrims were coming in to Jerusalem for the Passover. People would come from all over Israel to go to the temple. So it was packed. I mean, two million people in this little city. Then it says, as Jesus rode in, his disciples were leading him on a donkey. People were waving, just taking palms off of the palm trees around them, waving palm branches, laying out their cloak, and they were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody was. They all got caught up in it. it was, um, it's like that crowd effect. It was, must have been so loud that the Pharisees were mad. They were, they were mad. They said to his disciples, you guys better shut these people up. And Jesus said, hey, hey, if they don't sing, the rocks will cry out. As if this is something to celebrate. So what we do on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, is we remember that day. The problem is, is a week later, I bet half of that crowd was yelling, crucify him. It's kind of a sad state of the human heart, how fickle we are, how we get caught up, but it's not deep. It's not rooted deep. And so those who are easily say they love Christ can do some of the most heinous things the next minute. It's our brokenness. But did you know this isn't really the first triumphal entry? We're going to read about what I would call really an amazing triumph when Jesus first came into the city. But he didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He came in his mother's arms. But if you compare it to Palm Sunday, it's boring. Like, puts you to sleep boring. But I think it's a, it's a greater triumph than anything Palm Sunday can even come close to. Let me show you. Let's read Luke chapter 2, 21 to 38. At the end of the eight days, this is after he was born, he had to follow Jewish law. He had to be circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If you remember, the angel came to Mary and said, you shall, not, you shall name him Jesus, which means God saves, Jehovah saves. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, and that's Mary's purification, according to Levitical law, because she, when you have a baby, there's blood involved, issue of blood, a woman has to wait two weeks before she's pure. So she has to go to get pure. She has to offer a lamb. But if you're not rich, a woman can offer two doves. Let's see what Mary is here. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, it's Leviticus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law, 
of the Lord, which is Leviticus 12.8. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary offered two turtle doves. Again, she could have offered a lamb, but they were poor, dirt poor. So it goes on to say, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the, in the Spirit, into the temple, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So she was basically this idea. She, she waited to get married. She got married probably at the age of 14. She was married to this man seven years, then he died. Some people think that she... Uh, watch what it says, and it says, and then as a widow until she's 84. So then she was a widow for another 84 years. It's a long time. Some people think she was, he died, and then after he died, she, she was a widow 84 more years. Some people think that she was a widow until she's 84 years. There's some difference. Whatever the case is, that's a long time. That's a, let's either 63 or 84. Three sixty. Uh, who cares? Anyhow, she did not depart. It's a long time. That's my point. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here is the first triumph, and I'll just introduce you to the first audience. The first people, that wasn't a big crowd. Wasn't a big crowd at all. Weren't people waving palms. It's two old, crusty people. The first one's named Simeon. Simeon doesn't say much about him. It just says two things. The Holy Spirit told him he would see the king. And what we're going to learn is the way the Holy Spirit told him is he's quoting three different passages in Isaiah, probably four. But he must have been studying the Old Testament, must have been enlightened that he's going to see this consolation of Israel, meaning that when Israel's going to finally be saved, he's going to see how it's going to be done. And then the second thing about him is it says, once he saw Jesus, held him in his arms, I don't know if he lifted him up or held him, I wouldn't want an old man shaking with my eight-year-old, eight-day-old baby, but he was, holding him up, and then he said, gives him back to his mom, she's probably going, whoo, gives him back to his mom, and then he says, now I can die in peace. That's Simeon. Anna's story is not, you know, much more 
exciting, actually. It's really sad to me. Anna, let's just say she was 84. It's a tough one because you try to figure out, okay, so she's 14, she get married, 21 after her husband died, and 84 more years, so 103 is what some scholars believe. But let's just, it says here 84. And all she did is go to the temple, helped it out a little bit, served here and there, probably swept the floor maybe, helped the priests out a little bit, and she fasted, so she didn't eat. Fasting is when you don't eat sometimes to give prayers. And then it doesn't even say she got to touch Jesus. It said all she did is see him, walk by him when, he, when Mary and Joseph were coming in, and then it said she gave thanks. That's the story. Honestly, compared to the crowd waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, this is dry. This is dry stuff. 63 years of nothing but prayer and fast. What kind of a life is that? Seriously, what kind of a life is that? Kind of a waste, probably. I mean, everybody else is probably going to Galilee to do their bass fishing tournaments or the 10K in Jerusalem. This lady keeps just going to the old, boring temple. Again and again, everybody's taking their RVs up to the Golan Heights. She's back at the temple again, riding the Jeep. And, man, by Joppa, you get your jet ski at Joppa. She's only at the, she can't go this weekend because she's back at the temple again. 63 years. That's a long time. That's all I'm saying. Simeon is just reading old parchments. That's all he's doing. I think he's pretty old because it says he's been waiting, and the idea of waiting in the Greek is he's been persevering through this when he hasn't seen any result. And then it says when he finally sees the baby, he's ready to die. So he's got to be pretty old too. So not good examples really. Kind of boring, but in my mind, God thinks these people are incredible. They have to be. They're the first two that really got to see Jesus. They must have really meant something to God. In fact, I think they were very pleasing to God. I'm telling you, more I chewed on this story this week, like really think about it. You really think about 63 years of praying and nothing. Oh kind of a life is that kind of you know I was thinking about who would that be like it'd probably be like some of our you know old people that are always faithful but they're sitting in the back but they think they're not being even participating kind of being left behind the pretty old geezers in the back row of the church but to God who is pleased by faithfulness they are something special because they had tenacious faith. It's tenacious. They won't let go of it. I, I find this to be fascinating because as human beings, especially when you're in a pastor this day and age, we are always driving exciting things. We're drawn to excitement. It's in our blood. We live to be busy. We live to be busy because we think busyness equates importance. So we have to always be running and doing the fun things. It's easy to do the fun things. 
It's easy to join in the crowd. It's probably easy to raise palms and sing Hosanna. It's easy to go to healing services when everybody's getting healed. It's fun! But to be content in the daily grind, these people were more than content. They persevered in hope for years and years and years. Why? What made them different than, let's say, let's just pick one guy out of the Palm Sunday crowd who could wave that palm and sing that song and run into the city, but the next week when they say, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? Uh, crucify that Jesus guy. What, what makes these people different than, let's say, somebody like him? I think three things that are very clear. One is very obvious. The second one is not so obvious. third one is not obvious at all. The first one is very obvious. They were God-fearing. They had God-fearing hearts. They really feared God. Listen to what it says about um, Simeon in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Those two words mean that he wanted to do God's will, which is righteous. He wanted to do right things, and he was devout. The word devout is very interesting. The word devout means he was very careful about doing things right. Very meticulous. He really cared. Devout means that you really care about God's will being done. It becomes your priority. For some reason, it really mattered to him. It really mattered to, um, God's will really mattered to Anna. She, she would go to the temple all the time. Why? I think it's very simple. I think they really believe God exists. It's as simple as that. They really believe it. It's funny, I was watching, uh, I was talking to somebody one of my favorite historical Christian figures is Martin Luther. And part of the reason is because Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. And I have Roman Catholicism in my background. And when Martin Luther became a priest, he was an Augustinian monk. He would do, he would do the, uh, the Mass. And what the Mass would have is the Mass has the wine and the bread. But in a Catholic's mind... Our, we use it as, as Protestants, the bread and the wine, communion is a memorial, remembers back. But in the Catholic's mind, they believe when they lift up that host and they use a Latin phrase and they bring it back down, that's actually Jesus' real blood. And that's actually his real body. Okay, so they believe that. When Martin Luther came, and usually if you go to Mass, if you go to Mass for any amount of years, it becomes routine for the priest. Put it down. Like that. It says when Martin Luther did it, he would, he would shake. He couldn't, he was so scared because he knew inside of him was sin and if he touched God's body, he would be stricken dead. That's how much he believed it. So when he would raise it up, he would be scared to death. That's why he would whip himself on the back to bleed. He had a bad theology about 
about propitiation or atonement. He didn't really understand atonement. And that's why when he finally understood that when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of my sins, he was so excited because he believed this. He believed it really before, and he believed it even more after. And I have a feeling the reason why Simeon and Anna were so dedicated is because they really believed this God existed. Like they really believed it. And he was worth it. Instead of being like the regular attender who just goes through the motions because they're supposed to. The person who really believes God exists is that person who is driving his car, oh, let's say Wednesday at 1.30 in the afternoon, and somebody cuts them off, and instead of using the F word, they're like, God, please give me grace, because they know he's watching. They believe him. Or when people get together for church, like let's say we have a prayer service, they don't say, ooh, i got so many other options. Yeah, I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to show you a verse that has always stuck with me. Go to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 is um, it's a hidden jewel. Actually, Dan Spolster would like me to preach on Isaiah because Isaiah has these hidden little jewels. They just jump out. Isaiah is an amazing writer. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, let me read the first three verses, but verse 2 has something that is, God gives a little bit of hint of the kind of person he loves to get behind. In the NIV, this is the person I esteem. In the, in the ESV, this is the one to whom I look, and it's who God looks to or wants to get behind. But it begins in verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven's my throne, so he's up on the throne, earth is my footstool shows comparison, God is, is huge. He's infinite. So, and so what he's saying in the middle of verse 1, what is the house that you would build for me? There's really no place for me. God really can't dwell in a house. They wanted to build a house for him, but they don't really understand that he doesn't live in a house because he's infinite. But, but, he does love to get behind and support people. And so he says, all these things my hand has made, and so these things came to be, declared the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look. This is the kind of person I look to, or I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Here's the character qualities of somebody God loves to support. Somebody who's humble, walks humbly with God, and is contrite. That means broken. And then trembles at his word. What that means is his life is directed by what God says. I think Simeon and Anna tremble before the Lord. They're humble, contrite. I can remember my first year as a youth pastor. I didn't know what I was doing here, really. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was going to take the teens to New York City. And I had a mom that said, you're not bringing my son and daughter to New York City. It's terrible there. Do you understand that? And I remember listening, saying, i got to be humble. I'm not a know-it-all. i, I got to be humble and contrite. And then she said, because you don't know how much I love my kids, and I don't want to put them in that danger. And I remember thinking, in birth, it's not you. Don't worry about it. It's not you. You actually like your kids to get a little more adventurous. I saw Bertha going, is that me, John? No, that's not you. You know it's not you. 
And, and they said, I just love my kids. I don't want to let them go. And I just remember thinking, so when Jesus sent his son into this earth, did he not love him? Hmm. And so on one end, I needed to be humble and contrite. Let people have wisdom inside of me. But on the other end, I still bow to what God says and his directions and the convictions I learned from him. So the question is, do I please men or do I please God? And sometimes men is even myself. I should please God. I need to be humble and trite and live my life according to what I think his word says. So I told her, we're going into the heart of the city. I'm going to go after the gangs and we're going to put your kid in all kind of trouble. He's going to die in a crawl. No, I didn't say that. I did say it's a good thing for Kent City kids to see the world. It really is a good thing. And that's why I'm bringing them to New York. There's a lot of different people there. It's good for them. Let's go to the not-so-obvious thing about Simeon and Anna. In the scriptures it is, but when you just look at them, you don't see it. The second thing it's not so obvious is that they have, they have a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They were led by the Spirit. The reason they could recognize this baby because the Spirit gave them eyes to see. Look at verse 26 of, of Luke 2. It says, Now there is a man in Jerusalem, this is 25, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Then it says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. So the Spirit of God, it says in verse 27, led him into the temple. And the Spirit of God is the one that gave him a heart to see that this baby is the answer to his heart's desire. And in a way, in verse, it doesn't say as clearly about that, about Anna, but it says she's a prophetess. That means she's able to see into the future because of God's work on her. That's verse 36. And the idea is, in verse 38, it says, in coming up at that very hour, as if, this isn't a coincidence. She came exactly at the same time. that, So she was led by the Spirit as well. The Spirit of God gave them sensitive hearts to recognize this is the King. And I believe it's the same with all of us. Real knowledge, real recognition of Jesus is because the Spirit has come upon us. The Spirit of God gives us eyes to see. The reason you're a believer is because the Holy Spirit has worked. I look at it like this. Is here's just your man, a man and a woman are made in the image of God. We're image bearers. And in, as an image bearer, I am made with a he breathed his life into me. I have a spiritual part of me which connects to God. Before before God works in me, I'm spiritually dead. It says I'm spiritually dead. That's Ephesians chapter two, one through four. But then when the Holy Spirit comes down, comes upon me, he approaches me in two ways. One is revelation. He gives me opening of eyes, eyes to see. And he does this in two ways. He works on me to see, but he uses his word to wake me up. He wrote the Bible. It's so funny. There's some churches, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit's at odds with the Bible. Either we're going to be filled with the Spirit or we're going to read the Bible. Reading the Bible is stupid. Wait, the Holy Spirit wrote the words that are in the Scripture, and he uses those words to open me up. 
And I believe Revelation is living like Simeon, a lifelong learner. And then what happens as I walk with him, as I learn his ways, he leads me, makes, even though sometimes I don't even know it, like Anna didn't know it, but she went to the temple because probably there's a sensitivity she's given to be there at the right place at the right time. Sometimes you'll know it, you'll feel nudgings, but a lot of times, because you're in tune with God, he will lead you exactly where he needs you to be. He'll guide you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, as he wills, gives me the will and the desire to do what he wants me to do. Here's two metaphors. I'll give you two metaphors. The first idea of how he really moves us or how the Holy Spirit works on us. There's a movie called Mount of Monte, uh, Counts of Monte Cristo. Have you ever seen it or heard of the book? It's about this guy who gets thrown in jail. And he's a nice guy, but he gets thrown in jail with this priest that's a brilliant guy. But he's thrown in jail for 14 years with this priest. And they're in a bad prison jail in France. It's bad. But for 14 years, he spent every single moment with this priest who taught him how to read, how to write. He taught him all about these books of economics, how to sword fight, how to philosophize, how to argue. So every single day for 14 years, he was being poured into by this priest. To me, that's really the role of the Holy Spirit. He wants to daily, morning by morning, open me up to the, his revelation so I see differently. I think differently. I am being conformed into his image by the transformation of my mind. He does it to me all the time. And then, as the more I'm transformed, the more easily I'm led to exactly where I need to be. It's sort of like if, if you've ever driven across country, sometimes driving a car, it gets sort of, it's almost like you're doing it second nature. You're just doing it second nature. And all of a sudden, I can remember when we were driving to Wyoming, we were driving up this mountain, this big deer ran right across. One of the drivers swerved from the deer and swerved back. Because he was already driving, he was ready to move that van instantly. In the same way, when you let God take over your life, it becomes, it might not seem like he's doing anything, like a long drive, like you're barely even thinking about. But then when he needs to swerve you, the right moment, he will. That's what he did with Simeon and Anna. But the question is, easier for you to be moved on a dime the closer you are to him on a daily basis. And I think Simeon and Anna, if you look at Simeon's, if you go to Simeon, Simeon in um, verse 26 said, it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit um, Verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's Isaiah 52.10, that you prepared in the presence of all the peoples. A light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. He keeps quoting verses from Isaiah. And he's, to him, these verses were God's sign that he was going to see the consolation of Israel. Now this third thing, 
is the rare. This is what's rare about them. I think the first one was obvious. The second one is necessary. We need the Holy Spirit in order to understand. But this third thing is rare. And it's simple. But here's what it is. For them, Jesus is enough. He's enough. Once they saw him, once they saw him, their lives were complete. Look at 28 and 29. Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God, and then he said, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Meaning, that's enough. That's all I need. I'll tell you what, you have to stop on this for a second, especially in the case of Anna, because this bothers me, bothered me all week long. And here's why. And I want you to really think through this a second. This is overwhelming to me. After years and years and years and years and years and years of number one, they waited, Simeon waited. That means he was promised something and it never came true, so he kept waiting. He was promised something that never came true, so he was waiting a long time. Let's just say let's just say it's 30 years. Have you ever waited for something that long and you kept you ever get just frustrated? Do you ever do you ever pray something and it doesn't happen in a week or two weeks and you're frustrated? Or you're in a situation in your life and it might be 5 years of pain and you're like that's it, I'm done. That's it. Simeon kept waiting. Or let's take a look at Anna. Anna was suffering. It said she lost her husband, and so she fasted. And so this fasting, one writer, I love how they describe fasting. They said fasting is a prayer of protest to God that all is not well. My life is not well. This is not how it should be. So he fasted. She fasted in protest as if, God, help me here. Help me. So she had 63 years of that, or no, 84 years of that. And then she, uh, they both had religious duty. For Anna, she helped out at the temple, said she didn't depart from the temple. She was serving at the temple. And for Simeon, I think he just studied the word for years and years. So my question is, if you think about this, how can just seeing a baby be enough? Enough of an answer to your prayers. How can that be enough? Like all he did is hold the baby for, let's say, a minute, five minutes. He gives the baby back and he says, that's enough. I can now die in peace. How can that be enough for all those years of waiting? Truthfully. Or Anna, she lost her husband and she just sees Mary and Joseph walk by at the baby and she's thankful and everything's done. This is strange because we do not live like this at all. I don't. We want so much more. If God told you we'd see the consolation of America and all I got to see was the arrival of a baby, that's it? I was asked, I was talking about this, and this might be like, what's the big deal to you? I'm just, here's why. I was talking to another pastor about this, and I was asking him, as I've been studying of Anna and Simeon, what made them persevere? 
why is it so hard to stay somewhere in America when you aren't getting what you want? Because people will leave quick. And his answer was very simple. Here's his answer. People want a payoff. They want a payoff. They want, they want something in return for the work they do. Now, kids do. Like you tell, your, you tell the kids to do dishes, so do I get my allowance then? Clean up your room, so do I. We've, we've conditioned payoff. So I, I can hear people say, why keep teaching kids in Sunday school when nobody notices? They don't have thank you dinners that, like they used to. They, why do I keep teaching in Sunday school? It gets, you know, nobody else comes and fills in. Why keep tithing? I'm not getting rich. You know, like those health and wealth guys tell me if I tithe, I get rich. Why keep doing it? Why go to a prayer night on Saturday when all they do there is pray? It's all they really do. Why be faithful when there's so many better options? There's so much more to do. There's some, I can go dune riding. I, I can watch. I can go to games. I can, uh, man, there's so much more to do. Americans, for the most part, in my mind, they will do things if there's a payoff. There was no payoff, really, for Anna and Simeon in a tangible way. All it was is a baby. That's what makes Simeon and Anna so incredible to me. It'd be easy to go to the Palm Sunday Hosanna rally, but serving in the temple 63 years, I, I don't know if I could do it. I, it's great to believe in the Holy Spirit of miracles and wonders and signs, not the Holy Spirit of memorizing the Old Testament and just obeying it. I don't want that Holy Spirit. I want payoff. So why did they wait? Why was that enough? I think for, for one main reason. In Jesus, when they saw Jesus, it gave them hope. They know that he lives, and since he lives, things will get better. It'll be better. Another word for hope is salvation. Look at verse um, 30. Simeon says, for my eyes... My eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation means deliverance. Salvation means I am dying and he rescues me. That's what salvation means. And so in my mind, to Simeon, this child is the answer to all of his fears, his desperate plight, Israel's desperate plight of being under the Romans, our worry, our lack, and the ache in our soul, this child answers it. This person answers it. Because he is alive because he is here, I don't need to worry about anything anymore. I really don't. But salvation needs to be accepted to be applied. First believe, but then accept it. If I fall out of a boat, let's say I'm driving in the ocean, and I fly out of the boat, and somebody throws me a life preserver, I have to first believe that that will hold me up. And then I'm going to have to want it. I, if I really think about my life and I look at my wants, my worries, my needs, my brokenness, do I really believe Jesus is the answer to that? And then if I do, I need to live for him, grab him, make him mine by faith. And what he says here, 
What's interesting, in the end of verse 34, he talks about this child to his mom. He said, you see this child? This child's appointed for the fall and rising of many, in Israel specifically. But there's this whole idea that he is going, he's going to divide people, and for a sign that's opposed so that it's thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There's something about this child, that in this child, some people are going to rise and some people are going to fall. Some people are going to be pierced. Some people are going to be great. But this child will expose your heart. And in my mind, what he's saying, if you don't want this child, you will fall. And unbelief is to say, I really don't need him. He's not enough for me. But if you believe this child is it, it's all you need, and you accept it by faith, you will rise. You'll be resurrected. You will be lifted up. And I think this child is everything. He's everything. To the point where what, how you choose this child will determine how your life turns out, both here and in the future. So the question would be this to me. What will you do with Jesus, this child? Is he enough for you? I mean, is he enough just to worship even if you don't get anything in return? Is he enough to... I don't know, persevere? Or do you need more? Is he enough for your salvation? I was, um, I'll just end on this, this, this silly little story because I was asking that, when I try to preach, I try to really think of this. And I, I was asking this question while I was walking through the woods on Friday, trying to say, Chris, is Jesus enough? And the question actually is posed like this. Will you stay with Jesus even if things don't turn out well? And while I was asking that, this might seem really goofy to you, but this fat squirrel behind me was nibbling on an acorn, like a fat one. And he was, oh, like from me to there, and I was looking at him, and he wasn't even, he's kind of looking at me, just eating his acorn, saying, what's up, kind of thing. Two days before that, I was having a conversation with somebody. I was having an elders meeting where the elders was telling me about Man, I'm finding acorns everywhere in my yard. Those stupid squirrels, they just bury them. I think God made them like that so they'll plant new trees. Squirrels are kind of, God made them kind of different where they forget where they buried the, uh, the acorns so new trees will come up. But there's so many of them. And I was thinking about what he said, and then I'm looking at that squirrel and saying, you know that squirrel is fat and happy and doesn't worry about anything because he knows he'll be taken care of. And God made him and designed him where there will be enough acorns for him and made him stupid where he can, he'll find one here, he'll find one there. And like he ate three acorns while I was sitting there thinking through this. And I said, that squirrel has a better life than me because I worry every day. And that squirrel's just fine and fat. Because God does care about every hair on your head. Look at the lilies of the field. Nobody's been... Solomon hasn't been ornamented like they have, but yet your Heavenly Father takes care of them. Will he not take care of you also? To me, the king is worth worshiping even if I don't get payoff right now. And I'll persevere. Like that song, Jesus, lover of my soul, I will never let you go. You've rescued me out of the iron clay. You've set my feet upon a rock, and I love you. I need you. I don't know about you guys, but to me, I, I love Palm Sunday, but this is overwhelming, these two. 
Simeon and Anna because they they're not flashy. They have nothing really to offer us, but just they believe. The question is, do you? Let's pray, Father. I um, I thank you for people like Simeon and Anna. People we easily in our reading pass by. Don't think of but who are such tremendous examples of what persevering faith is that, God, I long to be like them. Please help each of us in here to say, Jesus, just even looking at him through scriptures, hearing his name is enough. It's enough because I know I'll be just fine. Help us to have hearts like that. Thanks for this day, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.